Today on episode number 200 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Maha Bali, Robin DeRosa, and Mike Trong discuss what we've changed our minds about teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Truly, it is ridiculous to think that this is the 200th episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I am humbled by the people that have come on the show to share with so many of us the gifts that they're giving their students in their teaching, and I'm just excited for the next 200 episodes for all the things to come. As many of you know, we've been working on the transcripts for the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, so I've had the opportunity to go back and reflect on all that I've learned, and that's just been a joy. And I want to give special thanks to James M. Lang, who is the series editor for the Teaching and Learning in Higher Education book series from West Virginia University Press. I'd like to thank them for making a financial contribution to make those transcripts available. And I'd like to share just a little bit about the series, and we'll be getting to talk to many of the authors coming up here in the next few months. The series offers compact books from great writers, and I can attest to all of that, who provide you with practical guidance you need to help students learn and succeed. And that's ultimately what it's all about. And speaking of helping students learn and succeed, I'm, I'm really excited to have the three guests with us today. Three, I guess we just decided to really chalk it up to the, for the 200th episode. Maha Bali, Robin DeRosa, and Mike Trong are all here to share stories about what they've changed their minds about regarding their teaching. And if you're not familiar with any of them, let me just share briefly. Maha Bali is an associate professor of practice at the Center for Teaching and Learning at the American University in Cairo. She's a full-time faculty developer, and she also teaches creative educational game design to undergrads. And Robin DeRosa is a professor at Plymouth State University, and she is in charge of their interdisciplinary studies program, and she's part of the university system of New, New Hampshire. She's also an editor for Hybrid Pedagogy, an open access peer-reviewed journal that combines the strands of critical pedagogy and digital pedagogy to arrive at the best social and civil uses for technology and new media in education. And last is Mike Trong. Mike Trong is the executive director for the Office of Innovative Teaching and Technology at Azusa Pacific University that's out here in Southern California by me. Maha, Robin, and Mike, welcome back to all of you to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you. You have all been on the show previously, so maybe I'll just start by asking a question. What have you been up to since you were on the show? <laughs> and for people who want to look at the show notes, they'll be at teachinginhighered.com slash 200, and you can read everybody's bios. And, and But anyway, what have you been up to, Mike? What's been going on? Our biggest thing is we're changing our LMS for the campus. So it's been all consuming for the past 
year and we have another year and a half to go. We wanted to make sure everyone had a, a opportunity to speak into it, which just involved a lot of people and time. And that I think we're very happy where we're at. We're, we're in the midst of converting and we're going to actually go live this summer and you know, we'll see. And would you just share briefly, even though it will be in your bio, your academic expertise in terms of your discipline and then also your current role? Sure. So my doctorate is in ethnic studies. It's very, very different than what I currently do, which is uh, I oversee the Office of Innovative Teaching Technology, which runs the online learning, fact development, and sort of teaching with technology, and also the ed tech kind of piece of the university. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, let's go over to Robin. And what have you been up to since the last time you've been on the show? Well, unlike Mike, I have been staying away from the LMS pretty much as deliberately as I can since the last time I saw you and mostly spending my time with students, our program. So my PhD also is not particularly in play in my current position. I have a degree in early American literature, but now I direct an interdisciplinary studies program. And so I have students who are doing customized majors across a range of fields. And we've been exploding in growth, which is something that's happening nationally with interdisciplinary studies and multidisciplinary studies, but it's also happening on our small regional public campus in central New Hampshire. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here today, Robin. And let's pass it over to Maha. Okay, so what we've been up to is my Center for Learning and Teaching, where I work at the American University in Cairo, just had our 15th anniversary. And we had a great 15th anniversary event where we had Paul Prince-Lou from South Africa keynote our symposium where our faculty presented their work. And then we had a second day, which is a celebration of our center. And we had like booths for all the different things we do. And we had a student faculty co-design session where we sat students and faculty together to try to figure out solutions to certain problems that we have on campus. Uh, and that was really beautiful. I'm going to write something about this with my colleagues who worked on it and one of, the stu- one of my students who did it. And our third day, we had collaboration um, stations with, there's an organization called Amical of all the liberal arts institutions outside the U.S. So they all came in and we worked together on certain things and thinking about future collaborations together. So it was really exciting. So um, I'm a computer scientist who ran away from the code, who eventually did a PhD, a master's and a PhD in education. And my role, I'm an associate professor of practice at the Center for Learning and Teaching. So I'm a faculty developer mainly. Um, And currently I'm teaching a course that I designed myself uh, that focuses on digital literacies and intercultural learning. Wonderful. Well, it's so great to have all three of you here. I'm excited to be preparing to celebrate the 200th episode with you. And I've been reflecting so much as we're also preparing these transcripts, just how much I've learned and how much I've completely changed my mind about teaching. And I thought, what better way to celebrate the 200th episode than to share things that we each have shifted our perspectives on in teaching. So I asked each one of you to share both an example and then a story that goes with that. You know, what what is a big shift that you've made in recent years? And then what kind of is the background on how you came to that? And we're going to start off with Mike. So it was a challenge, I think, to think through like of the things that I've changed my mind on and to sort of land on one. And I think for me, it kind of connects with my work today in my office. So our office is focused on helping faculty teach effectively with technology. So that's our mission and our goal. And 
often I find myself frustrated, you know, like working with faculty who are resistant to the use of technology in general and specifically to spe uh, tools like the LMS and things that I think are beneficial for students. And I can tell you many stories of faculty that said things like, the last thing I will do before I retire is to use technology. Kind of, I mean, it's one of those things that they just will not ever touch it. And I used to be frustrated. I used to like, just like, what's going on? How come they don't want to help students succeed? Because nowadays students are on their mobile devices. They want things digitally. They don't want paper. And, and I would al almost go to the point where I would say, no, they were committing educational malpractice. And I would sort of go about and try to like, just, you know, sort of speak into that and say, no, you're not helping students. And I've changed my mind on that. <laughs> I feel much more sympathetic to these faculty who I think are rare birds. I listen, I nod, I affirm where they're at. I don't insist. I now mostly invite. And if and when they're ready, I'm ready to support them and to sort of walk with them. And I think the, the key thing for me is I have learned that I don't need to defend technology or even defend the efficacy of the use of technology, especially in today's you know, uh, digital world, because we are bombarded with it. Uh, you know, we, really, we can't go through a day without the use of technology. And so I think I understand where faculty are coming from who want to limit the use of technology in their classroom so that they can preserve that uh, environment for the conversation, for the interactions that really, I think, sometimes get uh, muted because of technology. It occurred to me while you were talking, Mike, that both Maha and Robin mentioned not using the LMS. And it occurred to me that if anyone was listening today for the first time, that'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? 200th episode, welcome to the show, <laughs> that they might not realize that. And maybe this isn't a fair distinction or a fair way of describing it, but I would describe them as beyond the LMS, as in they've used an LMS and then... Are, have experienced some of the limitations of it. And I can have each of you speak to that, of course, but, but as in opening up their classes more, because the LMS is such a closed wall. And then I can't have my students share their work and get feedback from anyone beyond me or the other peers that are in the class. But it occurred to me that they are not the same kind of faculty that you were describing. I suspect you're describing faculty who are like, PowerPoint is my limit, or maybe not even PowerPoint at all. Just not even PowerPoint. Yeah, yet. just my notes from the 70s, just <laughs> on my legal pad. Not that I work with anyone like that. I love you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So any thoughts, Maha or, or Robin, in response to thinking about faculty who are more resistant to adopting technology? Well, I think I was in, in the space that Mike was in where, you know, at some point you're sort of an evangelist for the use of technology and then you start to realize, no, but actually maybe some people that's not going to work for them and that's fine. But with the thing of going beyond the LMS right now, it started out that there was one or two of us in my department who, who believed that. But now the ones who aren't on the LMS are the ones who are doing other stuff. They're even more tech savvy. They're even, they have even more digital literacy. So that's, that's just what I was thinking when I was listening to that. I've been interested as I become, you know, post LMS that I'm actually starting to use it a tiny bit more because I think my pedagogy, and this really echoes for me with Mike's experience with faculty, similar to my experience with students, when you really do let students fully drive, for some students, the LMS is the best cyber infrastructure for them, right? To borrow Gardner Campbell's term there. 
So not very often, but generally about one student per semester will, for various reasons, choose to work in a more lockdown environment or a more private environment. I have a student I'm working with now who's just a really different thinker. Yeah, I mean, dramatically different. And we actually do most of our work by email. Um, the LMS is to public facing really for him even. And so I kind of think about that as a win for working in more open ways, actually, is when students are exercising that kind of digital agency to say, no, you know, I want to stay in here. So weirdly, I've kind of come back around to respecting some of what it offers as a kind of in-between space for students who want to go somewhat online, but, but have reasons, really good ones usually for, for not working in public. Like you, Mike, I've had, I had so many thoughts about what has changed for me. And one of the big ones you sort of hit on, which is a shift from more of a mindset of control and then more of a mindset of invitation. You know, I talked about that in a post about laptop or device bans. And instead of phrasing something like a ban, perhaps there are times when we really should put our devices away. And now now I start more of these classes with, can we think about this instead of our enemy, for those of you that are frustrated by it, of just something we play with? Can we Can we try to adopt more of that attitude? I think for me, it's about that genuine effort. And I think if the faculty shows genuine effort in adopting a technology or using something that is new that may be challenging, and you see that genuine effort and they realize, you know what, it's just not going to work for them or it's not really relevant to what they're doing, then they don't use it. Then I think that's that's a valid uh, a way to kind of say no, no to technology. And so I think as long as I see faculty making effort towards genuinely trying to learn something and then they find out that, you know what, it's just not going to work for them, then I think it's fine. It's only those, I think, faculty that are just blatantly, I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to, you know. And, and for me, I've sort of, my posture for those faculty is, I'm just not going to engage. I'll, I would say, I'm glad, you know, you have your convictions. <laughs> and I would just leave it at that. Robin, are you ready to share your big thing that you've changed your mind about teaching in recent years? Sure. It's a little challenging because in so many ways, a few years ago, my teaching just took such a paradigm shift that it's hard to find anything that I haven't changed my mind about. So I tried to figure out like, how could I explain what that paradigm shift is? And I'll explain it through a story of a student of mine named Tiffany, which is her real name because she's blogged publicly about this. We may be able to recover that blog post that I'll be talking about, but it's her domain and I haven't seen it in a few months. So, you know, one never knows if it's if it's still there. But Tiffany is an interdisciplinary studies student at Plymouth State and she was in a nursing program and was about three quarters of the way through, maybe a little bit less, when she was diagnosed with a brain tumor and could no longer pursue nursing for various reasons in terms of like dispensing medications. And so she had to make a a shift. And one of the things that really anybody who works in higher ed understands is that once you get down a certain path, if you go to change your major, you can be looking at adding significant time to graduation, which for students in the demographic that we serve at Plymouth State can really mean not completing your, your degree at all because they can't afford to extend those that time. So one of the amazing things about our program is that we're able to 
do what I think of as kind of backwards design in curriculum building, which is something where many of us are so at ease with in terms of instructional design, right? Oh, I'm going to build a course. I want to start with my learning outcomes. I'm going to go backwards and build rubrics that link to those, and then my assignments will emerge. And so it occurred to me that, you know, students were getting a very bad rap for having these quote unquote bailout degrees, right? Where they would change their majors because they couldn't complete for whatever reason the major that they'd started out with. Sometimes they were failing certain courses. But really the, the backwards design that they were using to re-articulate the, the course of their studies was producing some pretty amazing results. And Tiffany shifted her major to patient advocacy and integrated all of her nursing credits along with some new social work and sociology and health credits and started publicly writing about studying patient advocacy as a patient. And of course, patient advocacy groups were very interested in her work because she had something to say, right? That was really authentic. And so what changed for me was realizing the stuff, like when I was trained at an R1 institution, you know, with my PhD and my specialty, I was truly trained that it was not my job to, to pay attention to these life issues that students had. And it was not my job to bend curriculum to student need. And it was not my job to care. I'm sorry, I'm getting teary because it's, it's so immediate, like a student's right out there right now. But, you know, it's not my job to care if they had breakfast. You know, I'm not a primary school teacher. You know, I'm not a Head Start teacher. I am an early Americanist, right? And I just changed completely after working with students in this program to realize like there is actually nothing that is not my job. You know, there's, I literally can't think of a thing related to their lives. If it comes into the class or the experience of working with them, it becomes my job. So now I'm just having named that for myself. It's like, Oh my gosh, I can build around this. You know, I can build structures that, allow the students to come in with their needs. Like, for example, I have a student I'm working with right now. And like I said, this guy's just a very, very different thinker. And the class that I have is over-enrolled. It's busy. We're quick with everything. This does not work for his brain, quite honestly. And I realized, my gosh, you know, you're going to be much better served if you don't attend class. Let's let's create some alternative ways for you to engage in, in the office when it's quiet. You can have say six hours, you know, sitting and I can move in and out of discussions with you in different ways. I have just become so much more accommodating, but I mean that in kind of a very real way, you know, not, not a kind of like we have three accommodations and we will offer them, but like what really happens if you structurally start to build around the, the real world issues that students are are bringing in. And that's been just transformational for me uh, and very, very different, I think, than how, especially in the U.S., a lot of us are trained to think about teaching college in particular. Mohat, did you want to say something? I was going to say that's beautiful. And I've also become more like that. I don't think I was ever of the kind like this has nothing to do with me. But I think I was in my early teaching of the kind where when a student keeps coming up with excuses, not necessarily believing them. But I had a time in my life where a lot of horrible things were happening to me at the same time. And 
my boss believed me and she never questioned that. And ever since then, I'm like, whenever a student, I hate it when people say they don't believe students when they say someone died or someone's sick in their family. I'm like, I will believe them every time because there will be some of them who are truthful and I will not put them through the, that disbelief. I'm just letting them know that I'm there for them. The only, the only issue I have is that sometimes I don't know what's going on. And it's their right not to tell me, but then when they don't tell me, I can't judge how much I should be accommodating or how much I should be supportive. So I try to be as flexible as possible in general within very, very broad limits. But yeah, but when they do tell you, then it becomes, then I think you, I think we almost have a responsibility to, to be able to support as much. As you were sharing your story and you used the word accommodating, accommodation, I was just struck because I thought that is the first time I have heard those words being used in a positive way. It, it is, I, I hadn't really thought of it. I mean, most of what I see it is, oh, they need a note taker. I got to figure out who's going to be the note taker. Oh, they need more times on tests and our testing center doesn't have enough time. Or they can't take, so it just means more time for me to figure, you know, it's just, uh, 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 complain, complain, complain about needing to accommodate someone. And, and the way that you described it had nothing to do with that. Like, how did we lose sight of the, the real treasure that that can be in a learning experience? It makes me wonder, though, how much more of a paradigm shift do I need to make? Where, where are my areas where I still need to grow because just just that I I was so shocked by the use of that word in such a different way than I've grown accustomed to. I think there will always be an area that you discover that you need to grow. There will always be a person that you hadn't thought of before or a, a kind of difference or a disability or ability or just difference along any spectrum or a person in a spectrum that you've seen before who behaves differently. <laughs> than others in that spectrum that you've seen before, which feeds really nicely into my story. Shall oh, I start? perfect. Yeah, great. Okay. So this is a, a story of a flip-flop with a postmodern ending where you then realize, well, of course it makes sense. How could you ever have thought otherwise? And so this, all, this kind of thing happens to me all the time, right? So my first article on hybrid pedagogy, the journal, is called An Affinity for Asynchronous Learning. And I wrote it at a time when I did my master's online back when, you know, the internet wasn't, was dial-up, you know, and so it was completely text-based. We, we occasionally, the students met each other on some synchronous something, but for the most part, it was asynchronous. And I talked in my article about things like, at that time, Egypt had a lot of electricity cuts. It doesn't anymore, but it did at the time. Bandwidth is different here, of course. And I had a very young child and I talked about all of those ways in which synchronous learning, especially video-based synchronous learning is inaccessible to a lot of people. But also that there are affordances to the asynchronicity, like promoting reflection and, and just giving some people who need that extra time and some people who need to be able to express themselves at their own pace, right? And then what happens, like a year later, my friend Rebecca Hogan and I start virtually connecting, <laughs> which is completely about synchronous video. <laughs> um, and Rebecca and I, before starting virtually connecting, had never met uh, synchronously before. Like we did it just to do the virtually connecting thing, which was at the time called ET4 Buddy. And so it's all about access just in a different way, right? Virtually connecting is about giving people access to conference conversations when they can't travel to those conferences. It does assume that they can get on a synchronous video connection and that they have that. And, and for a long time, it felt like, yes, virtually connecting is allowing this for a lot of people. 
But what started to happen is that we were researching inclusivity and whether virtually connecting is actually in some ways excluding while trying to include. And even while we were doing the focus groups for that online, there was someone like Kate Bowles, for example, who chose during the focus group to turn off her video and text, even though she could have turned on her video and spoken, but she turned it off and she texted instead because she was more comfortable with that. And so this last semester, my students were doing intercultural dialogue by a program called Solia. And I had, through virtually connecting, started to believe that even though I think asynchronous learning has its own value, but the synchronous video has value in terms of the effective side, like, you know, getting close to someone and feel like you really know them in a way. And the other part of it is that I thought some people are not good at expressing themselves in text. Some people need the immediate exchange. And I learned that in certain times of my life, I think better in a synchronous way, like talking to someone immediately. And in other times of my life, I need to just step back and write. So when, when my students were doing Salia for intercultural dialogue, um, I thought, you know, I wonder what they were going to think about it. And the crazy thing is this, is that I used to talk about how the problems with doing intercultural dialogue across different uh, countries is that, again, people in this part of the world have slower internet connections. And so their, their, their ability to participate might be less, their video might be off while the others was on. But I had a few students who were introverts and they were, the, the, the software that they use automatically turns off your video when your bandwidth is slow. And they loved it when that happened to them because they preferred not to be seen. And I've been telling them, allow the student to turn on or off the video however they like. Like that should be a choice of whether you want to interact by a text or talk and whether you want, you know. And so, of course, within, within the, the, you know, within the spectrum of people who have that internet access and giving them that option. And what is even more interesting is that some of the students said, we want pen pals. Like they went from this synchronous video, like the, you know, the latest technology there. And they're like, no, we want pen pals. And so what I'm doing this semester is that I'm trying to give students different options for how they want to interact interculturally. And what the postmodern answer to all of this is that different things work for different people for different contexts. And how do we try to be hospitable to all these different student uh, preferences for those things to get them to learn what we hope that they will you know, within the area of sort of what we hope they'll learn, that they also hope they'll learn. So, I mean, intercultural learning, you could do it any of those ways. And I don't really care which way, as long as they're comfortable with it. But only giving them one opportunity to do it means that some people will feel excluded or feel uncomfortable. And so this is what I'm trying to do now. I think as we were talking, a couple of things came to mind. One is, going back to Chickering and Gamson in their sort of article back in the 80s about, you know, I think it was the uh, seven principles for good practices and sort of undergraduate education. And number seven was about providing diverse ways for students to learn. And I think as you're talking about, you know, the asynchronous and the synchronous and the video and the text, I mean, it just, that, that's exactly what they were referring to is that how can we as educators provide students as many ways to interact and engage with the content and with one another and with the faculty? Because that's, you know, that's, really giving them the opportunity to express how they're processing and learning in the way they, they know how. And I think fast forward to today, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about personalized learning, you know, the, the whole field of how do we provide each student, each learner, their personalized path to understanding, to mastery. And 
I think in our office, what we've tried to do is to adopt that sort of idea of personalized learning for faculty development. So in the past, we used to say like, we just, we build these things like workshops and whatever, and they come that we build it, they will come. So that model is pretty much dead in, in higher ed for, for not only for, for students, but I think for faculty as well, because you know, when you build it, they won't come and you, you put all this time and effort and you get like one or two or maybe three faculty show up and then most time you know, they just don't have the time to come anyway. And so what we've tried to do is to make the opportunities available for them. So we have these phrases like just in time, just enough, just for me and just do it. And in and, and those kinds of phrases, it, it, it's about personalizing the opportunities to gain professional development that otherwise they wouldn't have. So if you have five minutes, maybe there's a, a quick uh, three bullet point you can learn. Or if you have 20 minutes, you can listen to a 20 minute mentor count comment. Or if you have an hour, you can actually listen to a webinar we just did or, or whatever the, the case may be. But it, it allows the learner to find in their own rhythm of learning what is best. And I think that's important. I'm sure that we could all keep going, and I'm just grateful for all three of your continued support of the show. I probably should transition us now to the recommendations segment, and I found a great new podcast, and I'm going to recommend a specific episode, but everyone that I've listened to has been great. It's a new podcast by the Harvard Business Review, and it's called Women at Work. And specifically, the episode that I want to share about is one that they did about authenticity. Because I realized when I hear authenticity, I I discovered through listening to the episode, I tend to think of it as a white woman. And, you know, should we say something in meetings? Or should we, you know, is it okay if we cry at work? You know, that those kinds of questions. And the people on the podcast were very diverse. And they were sharing authenticity in terms of African Americans wearing their hair more naturally. And it just I just thought like, wow, it really, it really struck me the limited perspective I had on authenticity. And I just love that it challenged my thinking about that. But it also had all of the kinds of things that so many of us struggle with, men and women and people of color. I mean, it just it's just a wonderful episode. I'd suggest people go listen to it. And I'm going to start trying to get a couple of them that were on that podcast to come on this show too, because I think it'd be a great conversation. And one of them, at least I recall, is a professor at a university. So it'd be fun. So that's my recommendation. I'm going to pass it over to Mike for his. So my recommendation is a book, a Neil Postman book. So it's called Technopoly. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that or not, but I read that about two years ago. And the subtitle is what, for me, is really the key here. And the subtitle is The Surrender of Culture to Technology. And I think that's really where, for me, my change, you know, when I was talking about sort of how I changed my mind about not to have to defend technology, because in his book, Technopoly, he really does go into these really important questions about what do we give up, you know, when we surrender our lives and our culture to technology? What What is it that we're, we're giving away that maybe even unconsciously? And it's sort of that Faustian deal. Like, you know, you, you think you're getting something better, but really what you'll end up with is worse off. And for me, it's about as an educator in the digital age, as a, as a learner, as a student, as a, you know, person who runs a teaching with technology kind of center, how do I balance that, uh, the, the importance of the culture of the human sort of expressions in a way that doesn't get squelched by technology or that technology doesn't 
take away from the meaning and the richness that Nantic human cultures have. And, and so uh, this one last thing I want to talk about this book is that he mentions about data. He doesn't use the word big data, but now big data is a big term that's been thrown around a lot recently. But his one point about that is that having more data doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. <laughs> and he's, he, he's given a lot of examples in his book about how having more data about you know, our incarceration and all that hasn't changed the way our country works. Having more data about poverty doesn't change. And, and if anything, it, it actually makes that become a, a way for us to just be passive. And I was like, oh, okay, that's an important number, but we don't do anything. We, it sort of pacifies the, the society about actually moving towards action. So, so that's for me was a, I think it's a, a recommendation that it's made me rethink quite a bit about our engagement in our relationship with technology. Oh, sounds fascinating. All right, Robin, it is your turn for your recommendation. Well, thanks for that, Mike, because I'm going to totally check that out because I've been engaging with some of these conversations online about assessment recently that the New York Times had a, an article and people are sort of debating hotly. And so that the sort of deflected attention of generating data is really interesting for higher ed. So, okay, so I was traveling this week. I was out in Utah and one of the beauties of being in New Hampshire, which is really hard to get anywhere <laughs> from here in some ways, is that I spent a lot of time on the airplanes. So I got to download myself a movie, which felt really indulgent. And I watched a film that honestly has stuck with me. It's one of the only times that I finished a film and I sort of wanted to just immediately watch it again. It was the Florida Project. And my research before I started working in interdisciplinary studies and, and higher ed pedagogy, I was actually doing kind of a project on sort of postmodern tourism because I, I look a lot at the American past and how it gets refigured in tourist sites. But I was working on a project about Disney and Disney dystopias, basically. So there was a piece of the Florida project that has a small sort of shout out to the symbolics of Disney, but it's really telling a much more searing and quiet and incredibly moving story underneath. And I haven't read any, you know, usually I walk out of like the second I came out of Black Panther, I was like, great, now I can read, you know, all the things people say about Black Panther. I didn't want to read anything about this movie because it's a movie that so resists judgment in a way. I, I'd like to hear people's ideas about it, but sort of like critically assessing it seems so not in the vein of this movie, which I think is so resistant to the idea of, of judgment, but it's a really interesting film about, about poverty. And I would highly recommend checking it out. And then maybe by then I'll be ready to talk to you about it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Maha, how about you? So I have three very quick ones. One of them is I just discovered a poet, a Lebanese Canadian poet. Her name is Najwa Zibian. And one of the really cool things about her, well, first of all, she's capable of writing very brief poems about really deep things that really resonate with people. And I found, does this on Twitter and on Instagram, and I found someone who collected some of them and each and every one of her small poems, I, I sent out on Twitter and dedicated to somebody. One I sent to my mom and one I sent on WhatsApp to my friend. And so her poems really resonate. They're really beautiful and emotional and I think she has a book coming up. But anyway, just follow her on Twitter or on Instagram. Her poetry is really, really beautiful. And I think resonates with, resonate with a lot of people. So that's one thing. The other thing is 
you know, during our event uh, last week, Sherry Spielitz, who is an African-American who lives in uh, Vienna, Austria, was visiting as well. And I invited her to teach my class. And it was such an amazing experience. It's the second time I've done that with someone who, obviously I know Sherry very well from Twitter, but it was the first time I meet her face to face. And I met her that morning. I took her with me to class and she taught my class. And the students loved it and I loved it. And there's a part of it where I trust her and I believe in her and I know her mind because I read her work and we talk a lot on Twitter. But there's also a part where you just make a leap of faith in another person and, the, and inviting them to your class and that your students will welcome them. And the students were really lovely about it. And today was the first time I talked to them after she'd been there. And they were, you know, when I said her name, someone just like started clapping and it was just so lovely, you know, that how much they enjoyed it. And she, she was really sensitive. About it. So just the idea of taking that leap of faith and inviting someone else to teach your class every now and then. Uh, it's the second time I've done it and I've really loved it. And the third thing uh, is something that happened when Paul Prinsloo was here. Paul Prinsloo is from the University of South Africa and he was keynoting our event. And, you know, everything was so busy because I was one of the organizers. So we didn't actually have a lot of time to spend and just sit together. So at some point he sat down and said, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. He's like, no, no, no. How are you? And then that took about an hour. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I asked him, how are you? And that took about 20 minutes. And so I think a lot of times when you ask someone, how are you? We just want them to say fine things, even if we know they've been sick, even if we know they've been through something traumatic. And I think taking the time to ask, how are you a second time when we really want to know how they are, not just how are you? I'm fine. It was just a really good reminder to do that because we'd been together for two days and only on that third day did we discover how we really were. Thanks to all three of you for coming and celebrating episode number 200 with me. It means so much that you'd be here today and just get ready for the next 200. And I hope that you each will be back for more conversations one on one. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks once again to Mahapali, Robin DeRosa, and Mike Trong for joining me on today's episode number 200. Thanks for your conversation and for your commitment to growing and making this community more valuable. And thanks all of you for listening. I know some of you have been listening since Teaching in Higher Ed started and some of you are newer, but all of you are an important part to growing the community and just helping us all continue to sharpen each other's teaching abilities and inspire and encourage each other as well. It is episode number 200. There are already lots of guests in the queue. And if you have yet to give a rating or review for the podcast on whatever service it is you use to listen to it, that's a great way to contribute to more people finding out about the podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.